Welcome to the DTB podcast for November 2022, volume 60, number 11. Uh, my name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we'll talk about the content in November's DTB. Uh, but I wanted to start this month looking back at the editorial we talked about last month. For those of you who haven't heard October's podcast, James talked about an editorial that highlighted concerns relating to press releases from uh, NICE, NHS England and the MHRA relating to uh, new medicines. And the concerns were that these press releases often use language that's inappropriate. Um, we felt they weren't balanced, no mention of harms, uh, and often used the classic advertiser's trick of discussing relative and not absolute reductions in risk. Uh, so, James, you wrote the chief executive officers of all three organisations to explain our concerns. Did you get any response? Well, not directly. No, we've not actually had any letter back from the NICE or the MHRA or from NHS England. How rude they were. Um, yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think they did respond. Um, the BMJ picked this up and wrote an article published on the 28th of September. And they had obviously been asked to respond to the article. And so we have some comments from them. Uh, in that article, but directly we haven't received anything, and I, you know, that may be the case. I'm, I think it's a case of we're going to have to wait and see whether they've clocked that. Actually, I think they overstepped the mark on the websites, and even though there's this new uh, bioscience strategic direction they're all travelling in, they still need to ensure that they follow the rules and the law when it comes to advertising prescription-only medicines. So the outcome measure we're looking for is whether subsequent press releases fall into the same trap that the early ones did. And if they don't, then we'll claim that as a victory. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no winners or losers here. I think it's just really important that we don't get to the point where we have regulators for drugs. And it's really important that they maintain the trust of the population they serve. And there's a real risk here that they're going to get egg on their face when they rush through a drug as they're now doing. They've got these, you know, accelerated pathways they're using. Um, and there's a real risk that they're going to come a cropper when something which they've, you know, warmly welcomed and used words like cutting edge or game changing, wonderful new drug, and then it turns out to be... Um, you know, unsafe. And so I think they should just stick to what they're doing. The MHRA needs a nice, in particular, have to be sure that they are just sticking to the facts. And they they shouldn't be doing anything on their website that could be seen to be promoting a drug. And the MHRA blue guide on this is very clear and even stipulates what an advertisement consists of. And if something you publish leads to or seems to be pushing to an increased use of a drug, that is an advert. Whether it's a press release or whether it's a factual notification of a drug that's passed a TA, they've just got to make sure they follow the rules and keep to the facts and make sure that people are properly informed about drugs. Um, you know, these are not commodities. This, we're not selling cars or double glazing here. Drugs are dangerous things and they need to be, you know, looked at coolly and calmly and ensure that people understand what the implications are of using any drug. Now, my take on, because I read the BMJ's report of our editorial and, and the feedback, 
I wasn't convinced that they'd, well, it may be that it was lost a bit in translation, but I wasn't convinced that they'd addressed the issue that we raised about breaching advertising regulations. I mean, their comments, I mean, MHRA said in the BMJ piece that detailed information for patients and healthcare professionals was published at the same time as the press release, uh, providing a breakdown of data and the full list of benefits and risks. Well, that wasn't made clear or links to it in the press release that I recall? No, and it's terribly clear on the MHRA blue rules, are very clear that if you're going to put evidence like that on a website, either it's got to be for professionals only, in which case it's got to be very clear that's the case, or you have to have the information there. You can't say I published somewhere else. It's got to be absolutely clear. There's either a direct link to it, which is absolutely clear, or it's got to be on the same site. You can't sort of say, well, we published it somewhere else, that's okay. Um, And we all know this, you know, every clinician who gets any sort of ABPI advertisements from any drug company knows that when you get it, you get all the bump with it, because that's what the law says they have to do. And, you know, the MHRA and NICE and NHS England are not above the law. And again, what I've read into the NICE statement on it was that, again, they said they provided the links. Well, I've been back and had a look at them. Um, and, and there aren't links on all of them. I mean, this isn't about catching people out, but this is just making sure that people, as you say, take this seriously, um, rein in the kind of exuberation for these new drugs and actually just present them factually. I, I'm sure you're right. And I, I think actually the powers that be, the people who have been asked to run the websites and do this, I just don't think anyone have told them actually <laughs> what the law is. I think it was a complete blind spot. And I, I'm hoping that we've shone a light on it and I'm sure they will be much more measured and and correct going on in the future. And as a a side note, it was uh, perhaps a challenge to us that our press release was issued on the day that here in the UK we had what's known as a fiscal event, um, subsequently (laughs) known as the mini budget or the U-turn budget or the submarine budget. Um, And I think all news outlets focused on little else since then. So our press release was perhaps lost a little bit amongst the chaos of um, the UK economy. But uh, uh, I guess we couldn't see that coming. Exactly. It's not about publicity. It's about just making sure things change. But talking about poo... Um, Shall we move on to your uh, editorial? Yes. Um, (laughs) Do we need to issue a warning that if you're listening to this while eating or about to eat, you might want to pause the podcast? You're so kind to people, aren't you? Yes, this is David's editorial, which is entitled Therapeutic Value of Human Feces. And um, why now, David? What are we talking about and why now? I guess, I mean, to be precise, yes, we are talking about human poo, but to be precise, it's the use of faecal microbiota transplantation, FMT, to give it its fancy name, and its use particularly to restore healthy microbial populations um, and provide protection against um, C. difficile infections. So why have we picked this up? Well, DTBHQ, we've been following the emerging story of the beneficial effect of FMT for many years um, and covered it in articles and and brief reports. I think what I hadn't appreciated was the long history of using human poo to treat gastrointestinal diseases. Seems to be evidence going back to the fourth century. Um, And in the 16th century, it sounds like the marketeers got involved and called it yellow soup, uh, which was an oral formulation of human fecal material that again was used to treat 
uh, abdominal diseases and, and perhaps to give it a more palatable name. But particularly, I think, you know, in more recent times, since the 50s, there's been, I guess, a body of evidence developing on the role of FMT. And now we have NICE suggesting that actually, yes, it's a good thing. Um, and that FMT, in their words, is associated with increased health benefits and reduced costs against almost all antibiotic treatment options against C. difficile. So they've now endorsed it and said that it, it's an option to be considered. And so we just look back at the history of it, look at it, a bit of the evidence for its use, both from NICE and other people. Um, and then talk a little bit about the fact that in the UK, we regard FMT as a medicinal product. Uh, and as such, it has to be produced by licensed units. So MHRA has to be involved. Um, but overall, the evidence is looking good. Um, it does seem to work. Uh, more effectively than, than many antibiotics. And overall, its harms seem to be minor um, and relatively short-lived. I mean, it is a very elegant treatment, I think, compared with... I mean, the concept that I've always found it very difficult to understand why having poisoned someone with antibiotics and given them a difficile infection, the way around it is to throw more antibiotics at them and big antibiotics. I mean, I think one of the things that always strikes me is that this is one of these situations which a you shouldn't ever get into if you can possibly help it because we should be really careful about using antibiotics that raise the risk and that I know I appreciate that's not always easy particularly now with this uh, focus on sepsis but then the concept of just using even stronger antibiotics uh, with with sometimes very poor outcomes and I was quite impressed I think um, you quote a systematic review, don't you, of 18 studies. I'm just looking to f see what the results of that were. Yes, yeah, um, so, well, in the studies, again, you have to be slightly careful that we're looking at slightly different evidence because NICE looked at five studies in which FMT was given colonoscopy or nasoduodenal tube or as an enema, whereas the systematic review of 18 studies... And they were, they were mixed, you know, they weren't all RCTs, they were cohort case series um, and a case report. But they looked at using it administered in, in capsule form. But whatever, the cure rate, the primary cure rate after eight weeks was 85%, which was impressive. Absolutely. And similarly, in the NICE review, in four out of the five studies, again, it was more effective than antibiotics. Um, and I think in the other study, it was no different. So... You know, it looks good. So coming to a, well, it won't be coming to a pharmacy near you, or perhaps it will, who knows? Who, who knows how far this will go? I think my concern is whether there's enough support for it sort of commercially to ensure that this takes off. And I was reading about Geoffrey Keynes, who um, was a doctor around the turn of the last century, who introduced blood transfusion service to London, um, after the First World War, having seen the Americans do blood transfusions um, on the front line. And he sort of single-handedly basically introduced a blood um, service for London after then. And I just wonder what it will take to get a microbiome sort of treatment service nationally set up and whether there's a, going to be enough commercial or enough interest from government to do that. It seems to me that that's the next step that needs to be done. The concept that each hospital will have to 
be licensed by the MHRA to produce this is going to be a nightmare. So it does require some sort of central development to make sure this is then um, used because it is just, as I say, it's such an elegant uh, and effective option, it seems to me. I mean, at the moment, it seems to be driven by, or, or one of the leading areas seems to be the, the University of Birmingham and, it, and its its program. Uh, again, interesting to know whether this is something that will will be commercialised and will then become a, a drug company or an area of interest for drug companies, or whether actually it's a bit too niche for them and, and it, it may not lend itself to um, traditional pharma approach. But um, yes, yeah, so I think the two, the two things that interest me, one is how will it be expanded across the UK? Um, and the, the other is this general approach about I guess, gut health and, and how we improve our our kind of microbiome. Um, and is this is this the start of, of other approaches in, in treating health? Watch this space. Yes, watch this space. So um, yes, yeah, so you can resume your meals. Um, <laughs> I suppose the, the, just one a postscript to add to that, which is the thing that is missing from the story is is long term follow up and you know we don't want to be criticised for glossing over what is missing at the moment and that is is long term evidence of safety and that's something that needs to be put in place before this becomes so widespread so let's hope that um, people are tracking what happens to people who've been through this sort of treatment and we can follow them up over the longer term yeah. right resume your meals um, let's move on well let's move on to an article that you sent me the other day. And which we've now covered in a DTB select piece. Um, this was a study about interrupting methotrexate treatment in people who are about to have their COVID booster vaccine. Do you want to say a bit more about it? Yeah, so th this came to light when one of our local trusts basically wrote to us and said, um, please stop people's methotrexate for two weeks before you give them their COVID booster. And... Um, I was sort of, crikey, is this national policy? What's going on here? And uh, so I looked up the underlying study called the Vroom study, which was published in the Lancet Respiratory uh, Medicine Journal earlier this year. Uh, and basically the study was one 127 people who were taking no more than 25 milligrams of methotrexate a week, had been doing that for more than three months and had already had their two primary COVID vaccine. So this was just for the booster. And these patients uh, were randomised to stop their methotrexate for two weeks before they had their, their third jab. And the outcome from the study was looking at antibody levels in the patient's bloodstream at four weeks and, and 12 weeks um, to the COVID spike protein. And what the study showed was that those patients who stopped their methotrexate for two weeks had about twice as high levels of antibodies to this COVID spike protein than those that hadn't stopped their um, methotrexate. Um, so that, that I think was the reason for this sort of, wow, this is something perhaps we should consider. But, and I think there's a big but here, um, a number of patients who stopped their methotrexate actually developed a flare um, and I think it was about 71% at least reported one disease flare compared with 45% who continued methotrexate over those 12 weeks. I mean, it sounds quite a lot even in those who, who continue their methotrexate, but that's a number needed to harm of about four. Um, and in addition to that, actually, we have no clinical outcomes here. There's, the study wasn't powered to actually give you any idea of any clinical outcomes. So we just have this sort of theoretical 
answer that yes, stopping the methotrexate for two weeks before your booster did seem to mean that you had higher circulating levels of antibodies. But that's not to say that the other group didn't have totally adequate response to the vaccine and, and we're absolutely fine. So interesting study. Other areas perhaps, you know, this is being picked up and, and clinicians are looking at it. But at the moment, I think because there's no clinical outcome, it's really rather just a theoretical thing rather than anything that we should be acting on. I mean, it's probably worth saying that the flares, I think most of them, they were self-managed. So they weren't severe in the sense they needed input from medical or nursing staff but you know a flare is a flare and, and with no disease outcome or no long-term outcome did it prevent you from dying or going to hospital it's a question whether you'd want to put yourself through the risk of, of a flare um what about national advice where do we stand with uh, has this been taken on board what's the current guidance yeah, so the Green Book sort of already sort of has a bit of a, a codicil about this. It, it sort of suggests that, you know, there is actually a little bit in the chap saying any decision to defer immunosuppressive therapy or to delay possible benefit from vaccine until after therapy should not be taken without due consideration of the risks from COVID-19 and from their underlying condition, which is sort of a catch-it-all, sort of be sensible, isn't it, really? So um, I think that's how it stands. I My own feeling is that the Green Book, whilst it was probably more uh, focused on really significant immunosuppression in patients who were having chemotherapy um, and where you want to try and make sure that you tie up their COVID vaccination in a way that keeps them safe from COVID, but also allows them to have their obvious significant treatment. Um, so an interesting study and um, I think, uh, you know, vaccination and vaccination policy is an area that due to COVID is sort of very um, current at the moment. And uh, certainly for all of us out there who are trying to get all these um, flu jabs and COVID boosters done um, current. But I think at the moment, the feeling is unless you have um, a direct advice from a consultant about a patient, then I would continue to follow the Green Book. So the default in your area is that, that carry on don't don't delay or don't interrupt the methotrexate treatment unless specifically advised by consultant yeah that's it or whether it's methotrexate or any other of the disease modifying drugs um i wouldn't do anything other than um follow the green book or direct consultant advice obviously um for an individual patient is another matter Okay, thank you very much. Um, and finally, our longer article uh, this month is a review of a drug licensed for treatment in children who've got peanut allergy, um, Palforzia, which to me sounds a bit like a friendly Italian political party. But, yes, uh, Palforzia. <laughs> sounds like I ought to have a cough. Yes, do you want to talk us through this one? Well, do you know, this is really interesting and it's really interesting on all kinds of different levels so palforzia is a licensed formulation of powdered defatted peanuts and it's a program um to try and reduce peanut allergic patients from responding in an allergic way to peanuts and it's a very clever system it works on the idea that you start on very small amounts of uh, levels and you build up tolerance through a number of months by taking bigger and bigger amounts of this defatted powder. 
and you know it's a really important issue this peanut allergy is a major issue you know it affects about two percent of children about 12 percent of patients who are allergic to peanuts get an accidental exposure each year and about two to three percent suffer an anaphylactic reaction each year so for children and adults who have got a severe IgE allergy to peanuts this is a major issue um, and you know over the last um, 10 years there have been about 152 deaths um, in the UK from a food allergy of which at least 40 50 percent is tr being triggered by peanuts or tree nuts so you know you can see why this could be a major improvement in the life of people with peanut allergy and we've got two studies there's an Artemis study which just looked at children and was a three-month study and then there's Palisade which um, was a study that also included adults up to the age of 55 and actually you look at the outcomes from the trial and you think this is good stuff so um, for example in the Artemis study after three months 58% of patients treated with palforzia were able to tolerate the test dose of peanut protein compared with only 2% of the placebo group. So that's a number needed to treat of about two. So you think this is this is great, you know, but then it all starts to fall apart, unfortunately. And this is why, you know, therapeutics is so fascinating because if you just look at those sorts of figures, you think, oh, it's a no brainer. But then you discover, well, first of all, it costs £10 a day and these patients have to take this drug day in, day out. So we're talking about £3,500 a year or so for these patients. You then discover that actually you need significant day case availability in hospitals because the first um, step up dosing that you do has to be done in, in a hospital. And every time you, you do a step up, you have to go into hospital and, and spend a day in hospital for that. So it's got significant issues on resources for hospitals. And then you actually discover that, you know, during the studies, 14% of those taking protein had an anaphylaxis and needed adrenaline compared, you know, with only 6% of the rest of them. So you've got actually, it, it just, and then to sort of the final nail, if you like, is that, which was staggered me, was of course about 66, about two thirds of patients with peanut allergy have multiple food allergies. So even if you are successful in perhaps making them more tolerant to peanuts, you may not increase their quality of life because actually they're still having to cope with all the other elements to their allergies. So this is clearly a, a really important area, really interesting. Um, drug, if you can call it a drug, really, I say because it's really just powdered um, peanut, uh, defatted peanut sort of powder in a, in a capsule. Um, but as I say, just really interesting because of the facets around this. So there's going to be I, uh, there's going to be a cohort of people that this is going to make a big difference for, I think. But actually, for an awful lot of people, having looked initially as this was going to be uh, a wonder drug, if I can use the nicest terms or whatever um, but actually you know for a lot of people they're going to look at it and say well actually I'm not sure I want my child to go through this there's a significant number of risk of, of um, anaphylaxis during the sort of step up and, and treatments and actually if they've already got other multiple allergies to other tree nuts or whatever then actually that we're still going to be in the same boat when it comes to our life and the quality of life around avoiding these things. You know, there are some people who are just hyper allergic to peanuts and this may make their lives different.
I mean, it was interesting that the um, study, there was a study in the US which, which looked at people who were eligible or who met the criteria for treatment, but quite a few of them declined it. And partly it was the concerns over the adverse effects. Um, but the other was the commitment to the treatment process. And as you say, it is a complicated um, stepping up process with, 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 as you say, day cases to, to make sure that you tolerate the drug and you have to stay under supervision until it's clear that you've not had a reaction to it. And that goes on for some time. Um, and then it's the commitment to taking it. Because what happens if you stop taking it? Do you lose your protection? Um, and, and how long do you have to keep on taking it? And so lots of questions that I kind of don't know the answer to. And the thing that particularly struck me was that this, and it had to be the way it was set up, but your study assesses your ability to tolerate a small amount of protein in a controlled test under supervised conditions, which is different from, I've bought a sandwich from somewhere, it has peanut in it, and I take a bite of it. How do I respond then? And of course, you can't test that. But there are some unknowns in terms of the evidence. You're absolutely right. I mean, it is, it, it, you know, you can demonstrate that there's a, uh, an increased tolerance to a certain dose of peanut. But, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you're not going to meet a bigger dose of that unexpectedly in, in, in food. And there's also, as you say, the risk that um, you might miss, you know, these are children, you know, what happens, they go away for two weeks, don't take their daily dose of a certain level of their palforzia to keep them so that they are still tolerant and then sort of forget and perhaps come home and take a single palforzia and, and have a reaction to it. Now, I don't know if anyone's looked at that, but that's the problem you have is that this works on the idea of tolerance. And of course, you will lose that tolerance unless you are being regularly having, you know, a small dose uh, regularly. So it diff it's, it's a difficult one. It, it One of the things where it all made absolute sense um, and it, it still makes sense, but actually the practicalities of it are far more complex. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it is a case. I mean, it may be that we just need to invest more into this area because, the, you know, allergies are increasing and they definitely have a big impact but we're going to need bigger allergy units. You know, we we struggle locally with getting patients to be seen with IgE um, allergies for a year or two. And that's before we start adding in the possibility of requiring, I mean, NICE was talking about 2,000 children a day being treated with- A year, 2,000 a year. Sorry, <laughs> yes, 2,000 a year. And that would require 24,000 day case visits. Now, I'm not sure there's that, that if we took the whole of the allergy clinics in the UK all in one, I don't think they provide anywhere near that now, let alone um, could give that additional um, capacity. And I'm aware certainly one of our uh, large tertiary centres locally, which runs one of our big allergy clinics, they uh, are not going to provide this as a service. They're not going to use palforzia. So I think there is concern in the allergy world about how this fits in. Um, and we'll have to see, you know, what what happens with this and whether there must be a very few units who who use it on a very strict criteria um, patients. So we'll see. But interesting. And I say, it's, um, I think it just highlights the complexities of therapeutics in the modern day. And not only the complexities of therapeutics, but the complexities of the 
kind of logistics and the structural support you need to do it to you know go back to the fmt yes you can use fmt and it works but you've got to have the structures in place to produce it deliver it and administer it here we've got to have the structures in place to be able to see see people um during all the titrating up process and then making sure that during the ongoing process they're they're supported and managed so the, the drug itself is is just a small part of the process there are lots more bits moving parts that need to be in place and as you say it, it seems that in some areas that's not going to happen yeah i think i think that's right i think so we'll see we'll see we'll see how it goes and um you know it's interesting because of course there's no reason why this process couldn't be i presume replicated for other whether it's tree nuts or and any any allergen in theory if if the concept of creating tolerance works then obviously perhaps you know you can start to introduce uh, other treatments in a similar way well watch this space we'll see see what happens uh, so thank you for that. Um, you can find all our articles, not just this month, on our website at dtb.bmj.com. And all our previous podcasts are available at a click of a button if you want to want to find them as well. Um, please let us have any comments on our content, whether it's the print issue, the online articles or podcasts. Email us at dtb at bmj.com and similarly if you want to get involved and thank you to those who have responded we had some emails and people volunteering to get involved with dtb which is great so please again email us same address dtb at bmj.com uh, thank you for listening to us and i hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time dare i even say it, it's the december podcast coming up in a month's time so hopefully uh, you'll join us for that and we but we won't mention christmas at this stage <laughs>